Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos. I am your host here, and today I have a special guest, a, a fellow 30-year-old, but one who has accomplished quite a bit in the watch world um, and otherwise, and that is Aaron Bazarkanian. Hey, Aaron, how are you? Good, Josh. Thank you for having me. Of course, absolutely. It's my pleasure. I know we were talking a few weeks back, and you just came back from a, uh, a very exciting trip that maybe we'll talk about as well. All right, so um, today we're going to be interviewing Aaron and uh, talking about his watch brand that he has started, um, which is uh, the watch itself is very special, the brand special, but one of the things that I think is the coolest part about this is that Aaron is not some 75-year-old watchmaker. Uh, he is, are you 30 at this time, or you're 30 now? are you? I have officially entered the, the third decade of my life uh, as okay. of March. So you're a wonderkin. As uh, some <laughs> folks would refer to you. So awesome, man. Well, uh, so before we get to know you, let's do our customary risk check. And as you being the guest, uh, I'll let you go first. What do you have on the risk today? Sure. So um, I, I recently was um, the lucky beneficiary of being allocated uh, the Royal Oak, uh, the 15500 ST uh, white dial, 41 millimeter. Um, I, the reason, and the, the my collecting philosophy, I guess, Josh, just briefly put, is I like to collect uh, the iconic pieces. So that's why I went with, with this one. Amazing. Well, I know that's a hard watch to get. Many people probably jealous listening to you, uh, seeing as you just got one of those at list price. And even with the kind of depressed pricing that we're seeing um, or you know the dip in the market since uh, the beginning of the year, watch is still worth well over list price. So um, congrats on that allocation. I know it's a great watch. I'm a fan of Audemars. I'm a fan of the Royal Oak, in fact. So I'll go ahead and do my wrist check. So today I'm wearing uh, a Royal Oak Offshore. Um, if you guys are have listened to the shows in the past, you'll know that I own, I've own i owned this watch for a few years. It's the Titanium Royal Oak Offshore. It's the 26170Ti version with the uh, the gray uh, tapestry dial um, with the black numerals, black, uh, black loomed hands, which by the way, I bought this watch and it was a year after I bought it that I realized there was loom on the dial. And that was because I watched one of Tim's reviews and he was able to charge it up. But I'll tell you out of every watch I've ever owned, this is probably the worst loomed dial that exists. <laughs> um, speaking of Tim, it's because it is black loom. So you can charge it up. Uh, I have to use my, uh, black light in order to charge it up, but it lasts for maybe 15 seconds or so. So mm. not really a watch that'll loom at night, but um, it is a great watch. I've said it, I'm on the record as <clears> saying <throat> that um, it's the best offshore, uh, especially for somebody who doesn't have like a, like a large wrist, even at 42 millimeters, not the 44. Um, the 42 millimeters in, in steel tend to be a little bit bulky, a little heavy, um, not quite as balanced, uh, and especially on a bracelet, which mine does have a bracelet, though I'm wearing it on an aftermarket strap today. Um, so the titanium, which I prefer, honestly, uh, uh, to every metal that exists, and, except for maybe yellow gold on on like a, a president. You know, if I want to go sure, down to Miami sure. Beach and I want to be flashy, yellow gold present works. But in ter terms of fit, finish, and wearability, titanium is always my first go-to. So if they make a model, uh, if, if, if there's a steel sport watch, but they make it in titanium, I gravitate towards titanium. And I'd say that this watch, even on the bracelet in titanium, just wears like a dream. Um, it wears more like actually like a Submariner, um, which is quite a bit smaller than this watch. So uh, I recommend if anybody's looking for these watches, they did go up in price in the last, say, six months or so, but they're still not kind of outrageous. 
um, like a lot of the uh, the watch pricing you've seen, even with this little dip that we're seeing in in the watch market. Um, you know the the these watches. This is a watch you could find kind of in like the low thirty thousand dollar range, which for what you get for what you pay, I feel like is is a tremendous value. But uh, but yeah, I agree. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, so and the titanium, like, like you said, is is um, it's my favorite metal as well. Um, to be right. completely honest, uh, you know, with the H and O, that's that's the metal we ended up going with just because of that. You know, I knew it was going to be a little bulkier. The the watch itself, you know, it's an everyday or it's meant to be banged around, hundred meter water resistant. I had to go titanium just because I wanted to compensate for that. So I'm I'm one hundred percent with you. Cool, awesome, man. Well, I'm glad we're in agreement. I think we have more than just that in uh, in common. So let's go ahead and get started and explore this. So, so first things first. Um, you are wh- where are you from? Are you from California? Born born and raised, Los Angeles. Okay, so you're, you're yeah. a West Coast guy, and um, you have a an interesting background in terms of kind of how you got here. So why don't you why don't you go ahead and break that down, and then we'll, once we get to present day, then we can talk about you know, you starting your brand and, and why you did that and why you went with this specific model. Cause I have a lot of questions about that actually. Too, but... Sure. Sure. So give me a quick so, rundown uh, on who you are and where you came from. Sure. Uh, like I said, born and raised Los Angeles. Um, uh, I come from an Armenian background. Uh, my, my father uh, came to America um, in the early eighties, escaping from the, um, you know, the Lebanese uh, civil war, the conflict, if you want to call it that. Um, and, uh, you know, just the traditional Middle Eastern immigrant story, you know, he came here with essentially nothing and just worked hard and ended up meeting my mother who, uh, came here from, um, Syria, um, in this around, around the same time. And, um, yeah, I was born and raised. I grew up in Los Angeles. I know it like the, you know, my hand and, um, it's home. Um, I, my previous career um after graduating college um i was uh in real estate i also worked in in mortgages and more you know finance related uh dynamics but the majority of it was real estate los angeles the west side um had a decent amount of success in it but my passion was always in watches um and like i've said previously um it wasn't like I was two years old and I found this mechanical thing and I started uh, playing around with it. I don't have that story. Um, I discovered it relatively late to, you know, a, a lot of what you hear from other watchmakers or other CEOs of watch brands. Um, you know, I was I was in my mid-teens uh, or late teens, I guess you can say, uh, when I really started paying attention. So it wasn't that, like, typical story that you hear from people. Gotcha. Okay, so so you're born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, you always had an interest in watches, in real estate. So how did you get into the business of watches? So it was not my own doing, um, to be completely honest. I was looking for a job in the industry, and at that point, I was very not desperate, but I was so wanting to get in that I would almost do anything uh, within the industry in any dynamic. Um, I believe very much uh, what uh, Jean-Claude Biver has been quoted saying, you know, if you want to be in this industry, just get in. Uh, that that was my mentality. And it still is to a certain extent. Um, and um, so I started applying to different, uh, most of them were corporate 
jobs. Uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, like the respawn-owned brands and, you know, that kind of thing. Great brands. Um, and in the interview process, I started noticing, I'm like, you know, this has always been fun for me. Like, this was always a joy for me and like an innocent joy. Um, and in those interview process, I was like, man, this is really corporate Like, this is really bureaucracy and um, just, it didn't feel right. Um, I was escaping that from real estate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's right. Um, I only learned that dynamic uh, because of this last trip that I took. Um, but we can get into that later. So, um, yeah, I was like, man, I, I, this is not what I want to do. I want to be in industry, but this is not the, the dynamic I want to be involved in. So I started paying attention more and more to the independent scene. And um, by a chance, you know, whatever you want to call it, my wife had gotten me tickets as a birthday gift for the watch time event in, in uh, downtown L.A. And she told me about it. I was like, absolutely. Like, we, we're going. There's n- I'm not missing this. So we go. And it was like Disneyland for me because it was the first time I had really been exposed and actually saw these independent watches and the makers in person. So it was like starry eyed. Um, I go, I um, eventually meet um, uh, Pierre Halimi, the general manager for uh, FP Journe Americas. And at the time, I had only dreamt of even being remotely anywhere near an FP Journe because I had heard so much. I had seen so much, I had read so much, but there was no way, I didn't know anybody that had one, so I wasn't exposed to it. Um, so I go, I introduce myself, I talk to, I, and I, it's funny because I ended up meeting the guy that I ended up um, replacing there uh, at the time. So we meet, I tell him, hey, I, I want to be involved. I don't care what capacity it's in, I don't care what... Uh, position you want to call it, title, any of that. I just want to be involved. Um, and he said, great, that's, you know, the passion is the first uh, requisite, so that's good that you have that. And gave me his card, he said, be in touch. Um, two mo- I think it was two months later, roughly two months later, I had emailed him just checking in, saying, hey, you know, uh, is there anything else? You know, I'm still interested. And he said, funny enough, we have an opening in L.A. I didn't even know there was an effusion in L.A. because I've, I had it in my mind that I was never going to be exposed to these things ever again, you know. Um, so I go, I meet, um, Laurent Jorn, who's the brother of Francois Paul, who runs the boutique and still does to this day. Um, and, and it was funny because one, it's the first time I'm meeting someone in a real setting, like that's really French. Um, and, uh, if you meet Laurent, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. He is unapologetically, not only himself, but French. Um, so I, I was the first, I, I pride myself on being able to read people and, you know, I come from real estate and sales and all that stuff. So I, I, I'm pretty good at that stuff. And this guy was like just a wall. Um, and he's just sitting there looking off and I'm in the interview process and man, I'm like, how's it going? Like, I have no idea, no way to rate this guy. Like I, I can't read him. Um, second time I get called in and that's when they showed me like the admin side and you know this is how we do things and he just showed me basically he gave me the job and um, I said absolutely like it's not a for me it wasn't a question but it was at a time in my life where my you know at the time my fiance and I um, we were just about to get married Um, first time we're going to be out of the uh, the nest so to speak and you know we're going to have a mortgage and all of these payments and blah 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 and all that stuff and I come from real estate. Like I'm not, nobody in my family came from watches or watchmaking or the industry. Like we, nobody had context. So I was so nervous at the time. 
um, where I called a meeting with my uh, my in-laws and my own family saying like, hey, I want to do this. Like, this is my passion. What do you guys think? Like, I need someone to like push me off the ledger because I, I didn't know, you know. Um, and uh, it was my, my father and my father-in-law who said, um, you would be stupid if you don't do this now. So I, I thank them for really pushing me off the ledge and um, uh, saying, go with your gut, you know, trust it. So it's the best decision I ever made in my life. It led to me founding the, the company um, now. Um, it was, the, I worked there for three years roughly, and it was the best three years of my life. Um, that's without a doubt. Um, the people I met, the relationships I built, the experiences, the moments, the memories, um, I was there yesterday to say hi to them. So they are they are like my family. They are my friends. Um, and we maintain the relationship. So um, that's how it came to be. Nice. So your, your one and only job within the watch world was working for at the Jordan Boutique in Los Angeles. I mean, that's – That's, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty freaking cool, man. It's – it's um. <laughs> It was, I know how lucky I am. Uh, I know that's not a typical story. Um, it worked out that way. I don't know why it worked out that way, but um, here we are. And, you know, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Nice. Well, it's funny. So we're not going to make this about me, but as I, as I look through your story, like I see a lot of, uh, a lot of my story in there, right? So my, my mother's family came here in 79 from Russia. They escaped essentially the communists there and were, chased out really. So, you know, we have first generation Americans um, and it's, I'm in sales, I have a sales background. I always have been though. I'll tell you this and I wonder if your family feels the same way or not, but be coming from that type of background, having immigrant parents, the idea of being a salesperson was not like the idea of success. It was doctor, lawyer, right? My mother's a dentist. She's had her own practice for 30 years. She always said, you know, make your money with your, uh, with your mind, not your hands. And, you know, I ended up in sales and she's like, oh, this guy, you know, he's going to, this guy's going to be a failure. Well, you know, it turns out it, it turned out okay. Right. In fact, no, you, like you, did, you did okay. So far we're doing okay. You know, the story's not written yet, but I was like, make, make, <laughs> I always make jokes now. And I say, oh, you always told me to make, make your money with your, with your mind, not your hands, but she's a dentist. And I go, you're basically you a laborer. You're there, there you go. For your handiwork there. You, you so, know, the, uh, the, um, it's funny you say that because um, my, my, my parents, that's, you know, any, ask almost any Middle Eastern background individual, and the story is almost identical um, as far as like, what? You're going to do what? No, this is a secure thing. This is what people have made money historically with. Just, just stick to that. Don't take risks. And um, it was nice to hear that from, like I said, uh, the two father figures um and um i think that as you get older and you show and and that's kind of where where i've seen you know so you know i my my intro to watches was working for a company called watch you want which has now been now it's called watchbox but almost 10 years ago you know i was in sales um and i was hustling essentially and i got an opportunity to i got a job interview at watch you want it was a small watch company they were doing like 10 million dollars in sales a year which the time was pretty big for a for like a gray market or a pre-owned seller. And I honestly, I didn't know you, I didn't know people bought pre-owned watches. I didn't know anything about this. And I remember my, my first month uh, at the, it, it working for watch you want. And, you know, I was doing pretty well right off the gate, you know, right out the gate. I was, I was buying and selling. I turned out like after my third month, I was the number one guy at the, in the office uh, just cause I understood sales. Right. And that was my mentality. But I remember telling a buddy of mine, 
um, that, you know, I can't believe somebody would spend $8,000 on a Breitling, on a watch in general, and it was a Breitling. And I, now it's funny, like, because, you know, I'm wearing a, what I guess is a $30,000 AP, and it doesn't even seem that, that, that big of a deal to me. But, um, you know, it's, it's crazy how things change. And, but yeah, so, you know, on my, like your end, you got the job with Jorn, though you were, seems like you were gunning for it, whereas me, it was happenstance. And then now I can't imagine my life without watches. In fact, my daughter, who's a little over two, um, like her fourth word was watch. And now I, I, she has a little collection now. I started buying her little Mickey Mouse watches and literally on Father's Day, I don't know why she decided to do this, but I love it so much. She asked, she wanted to wear both, uh, two watches at the same time. And I said, you just made my life. And that's it. So Full, full so, circle. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. So, um, so, okay. So you, you were, you had a sales background, you got, you started working for Jorn. So you got an in-depth view of independent watching and probably at the best time possible, right? Cause when you got in to Jorn, what year was it when you started? Uh, so 2019. Okay, so 2019. So things had already started heating up a little bit. Like the CD was already basically oh, impossible yeah. to get at that point, but it wasn't astronomical. So you kind of got in right at the time where Jorn was lighting things on fire. Um, so why don't you like, tell me what you, that experience was like? Uh, like being part of a brand that went from like had a lot of interest to I mean, so when did you left? What last year? Uh, no, this year. Okay, so um, this Mar- year? March 31st. Yeah. Right. So like literally like. Now you're having like million dollar auction results for early watches and things, right? Yep. So um, explain that and like how, what your view of that was. And did you understand that, you know, what the watch market was like at that point? Or when you showed up, did you, how long did it take you to realize that, oh, wow, I'm part of like the number one independent brand on the planet? So uh, in the beginning, uh, I mean, I knew I was following, uh, I, I wasn't following independent price fluctuations or anything like that, but um, I was I was more focused on like the creativity and the art side of of that uh, side of the or that niche of the industry. Um, so I was watching, I was looking at you know Patek and Audemars and Rolex prices and saying like, damn, this is crazy! Like, what is happening? Like, when I first learned about the industry, um, the first watch I came across or high end watch I came across was, um, I mean, in the I guess in a in a different type of company. I mean, is Frank Mueller. And I heard about the Casablanca um, Havana, and it was like a twelve thousand or sixteen thousand dollar watch. I forgot at the time. Um, I was like, "Who in their right mind would pay anything near that amount for a watch?" You know, I thought Apple Watch. That's that's it. You know, that's that's our world. Um, so when I started seeing Rolex prices in Patek and or Nautilus, I should say, and um, AP, I was like, "Damn!" Um, when I first started with Jorn, everything was under retail. Everything. Um, I rem- the CD I, was 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 probably a little bit over in 2019. I think that yeah, was, that was the only one. Yeah, that was the only one. Um, and it was already to the point where anybody that came in and asked for the CB, we were like, "Here we go!" You know, the whole spiel. Um, so uh, it slowly started creeping up where we were. We would be looking at Corona 24, and you know, day by day, we'd be like, "Ah, oh, okay, it's going up a little bit." You know, we're doing good. Um, I remember me and Laurent on the floor. Uh, um, we had 50, 60 watches in the safe at, at any given moment. You can walk in. We had um, four or five different elegants, um, uh, Corbions. We had a Corbion uh, at one point that was just sitting there. We had a Regency dial Torbion that was just sitting there. Um, so there was like special pieces where, you know, now we would kill or someone would kill um, for for attaining them. So I saw, I like you said, I was part of that 
oh my god we're going into the stratosphere now um mm-hmm. so um it was interesting to see um who was coming in because before it was if you know you know strictly mm-hmm. connoisseurs like that was the only collector that would come into jorn um and here and there people that stumbled in um as forward to you know let's say right before i left it's madness it, it it was totally different like first of all younger demographic like that and that applies i guess generally to the industry now but when we had i remember like uh 14 15 year olds three of them that came in and they're like hey uh we want to see uh oh, i forgot which watch it was but it was one of the complicated genres and i made a joke i was like aren't you guys supposed to be at like a paddock or like an ap boutique <laughs> you know trying to just see what the cool hype pieces are so it was just like hanging out at the mall <laughs> like, smoking weed behind like the, <laughs> the dumpster like what are you doing at the short boutique yeah, at 15 yeah. years old R- right right and they started like talking about the different complications and the technical aspect i was like damn like this is i didn't see this coming so um i think the world is in on it now um just i think what brought them in in my opinion was um, these astronomical auction prices and, you know, the ridiculousness of these, uh, the prices on the secondary markets where they're like, wait, I can make money on this stuff. So I think the reason they got in is the wrong reason. Um, but nonetheless, it's a net net benefit to the industry. So we can't really be, uh, beggars and choosers, uh, really at this point, I think now we can start to like nuance it and, uh, it's so good in the industry right now and including me um where you have to kind of make the decision as to okay i have 10 watches that i can allocate um there's 20 people who are these going to uh that's a blessing uh you know before i saw it with jordan you know we would me and laura would high five when we made a sale because it was like oh man let's celebrate you know um and now it's sold out for god knows how long so yeah you know it's just it's cool to see that but you have to control it. Sure. No, I, I don't understand that. So, and then in terms of like allocations, were you, did you have say in that? Did you guys have discussions? Are you allowed to discuss how you determine who gets what and whatnot? And, and then if, if you are like, explain to me, because I know how tough that is on our end. Um, you know, yeah. a, a watch comes in, you know, who do we pick, who gets it, whatever, like, which is a weird position to be in. It's like, who gets to spend their money with us, right? So it's like, it's right, kind of weird. Right. As a people person myself, I'm very empathetic. And like, I could certainly put myself in the perspective of somebody who like has $50,000 to spend on a luxury good and like has to beg somebody essentially for it, which it always makes, it seems right. very gross. So like, can you elaborate on that, on that side of it? Yes. I mean, um, Jorn has always been, um, and I only speak about it so freely because I know it's the truth and they're amazing at what they do. Um, and you learn from the best, to be honest. So, yeah, I mean, the directors were always the ones that made the final decision, of course. But, um, yeah, of course, they're they're listening to, you know, if someone came, comes in and I build a relationship with them, inevitably, they're going to also meet Laurent or whatever respect director. Um, and you're going to start building the relationship, you know, all together. So um, it's very rare for that disconnect to be there, uh, to be completely honest. Um, they would listen to us. They would, they, they you know, uh, like I said, it's, it's a family. Uh, to this day, it's still a family. And you can ask any Jorn collector, or at least one that commits their time to having a relationship, um, that that's literally what it is. Um, I, like I 
the collectors that have bought my watch, for example, a good amount of them are people that I met at the at my time at Jorn. Um, they are not collect. I don't look at it as like collectors. They they are my circle. They are my people. You know, um, and I'm theirs. So uh, it's a very different dynamic in that regard. And it, I remember there was a few emails and texts and calls of, that I made um, saying, "Hey, Mr. So and So, your watch is ready. We we decided that you are the one that's going to receive it." And there were tears. There were like literal like, um, I guess not. I don't want to say life changing, but some of these people would be like, you changed my life. And we'd be like, dude, this is, it's a, it's a watch, you know, uh, it's, it's like, uh, we're not saving your life. You know, we're giving you a watch. You're welcome to the family, but you know, we're happy to have you, but some people took it really seriously. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it, it, it's, you know, you, I think nowadays, especially there's more of a connection, right? And like, and I think that that's what most of the brands are going towards. And I think, that, you know, if I look out 10 years from now, I'd say every brand, I mean, dare I say even Rolex and Paddock will eventually be selling direct to the, to, to the, um, to the customers. And I think that in today's world it makes, especially in, within the, like the luxury watch space, it makes more sense, right? Like having these large distribution channels is not as important anymore because number one, you don't need to rely on other people to, to educate, you know, uh, educate uh, the customers about the brand, right? I mean, there are some of those really good dealers out there, right? There's there's some small independent dealers that are uh, that are out there that have always been like actually involved in the watches, really care about them and then will help cultivate a brand. But I'd say the majority of the authorized dealers for almost every brand are just there to sell watches. Like they're not, they're not living the watch lifestyle. They're not obsessed with the watches. They don't know everything there is to know about them. And, and and are there to really represent your brand. So I think that the way that Jorn did it, even though from our perspective, like, so being part of that, of the Gumpberg family, which was an authorized dealer and, you know, Watchbox, which helped, I think, build brand awareness, right? Through Tim Masso and a lot of the stuff that we've done, you know, we, uh, Gumpberg lost the the brand as, a, as an authorized dealer and it stung and it hurt. And I think that there was, you know, it, it didn't feel good right away, but from a, I can look at the company, uh, look at Jorn, Jordan's perspective and say, listen, like the best thing for our brand is to keep everything in house. You can control the message, control distribution, and you have so few watches. There's no reason to have these large distribution, um, uh, distribution centers or, I, you know, I, uh, channels. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I, I 100% agree with you. Um, I think the retailer model, um, has to change. And I think Watchbox is doing the best job at it. Um, they're, they're a media company, um, in my opinion. Yeah. And uh, they just happen to sell watches now. So um, keeping the people entertained uh, is the, is the, if not the number one thing, if, uh, I mean, as, as, as important as allocating watches and then, you know, celebrating the watches, um, it's about who is relevant, you know? Um, for example, as far as how Jean was doing, uh, you know, the retailer relationships and all that. Uh, those were very, very, very hard conversations to have. I re- I remember it very well, um, Pierre. You know, after we would have these uh, Team America meetings on Zoom, um, and he would say it was really tough, man. Uh, but like you said, you have to look at it as a business decision because at the end of the day, it is a business, um, and the only option was to go in house. Uh, you know, there's. Hundreds of people waiting to get the watch. They're coming to the boutiques. They want to be a part of the the family and have a close and personal relationship with the people behind the brand. Um, and 
Lord knows, uh, Jorn is full of people that are just charismatic as all hell. Uh, I mean, across the board, uh, good people. And uh, there was no room for assholes, as um, as we would say. So um, it, okay. it, it, there is no other way, you know. And, and I think as far as, like, the retailers are concerned or the dynamic of retailership, unless you're doing something like, uh, for example, um, uh, my friend Chris uh, at Esperlux, for example, that specializes in the independent scene, I'm sure you know him is amazing and they're doing more content and watchbox obviously with him and you and you know all these amazing informative things that you guys do it it, it speaks a lot man i mean it helps mm -hmm. people make decisions and it helps people uh develop and understand the world that they're so passionate about more and more so um i think it's the right I'll move you, i think it's the right direction i'll give you a real world uh, uh, ex um, example of that so Few, about a month ago, I had a customer who reached out to me, and we had a, um, a minute repeater. It was a, the stainless minute repeater in stock and a very expensive watch. Actually, it turned out to be like one of like the top five most expensive watches at one time, one watch I, I've ever sold. And we re he reached out to me. We had a conversation. The guy was busy. We ended up moving it to text, and we went back and forth, back and forth. And he would every, every few days, he would ask me another question about the brand, about the watch, whatever it may be. So... Um, the last, you know, it, it goes on for about two or three weeks, and he says, hey, I'm just trying to wrap my head around spending that much money on a watch. I, I think I want it. I really do. Just give me a few more days. And I said, not a problem, of course. Like, this is not not something that I'm, I'm pushing you to I'm, – I'm not trying to hurry you on this decision. Again, it's a lot of money, and I don't spend other people's money. So if you make a decision to go yeah. forward, that's great. And if not, no big deal. So then I went and found Tim's hands-on video of the watch, which I guess he hadn't seen. I just assumed that people have seen these. So – he hadn't seen it. I went ahead, sent it to him. The next, you, you saw he read the text. The next morning, he goes, "Hey man, we're gonna go ahead and move forward with this." So, and he told me afterwards, like, "Yeah, Tim's Tim's hand on review. Like, I watched that before I went to bed, and then I dreamed about the watch all night, and I decided I gotta buy it." So, I mean, I think you're totally right about that. The watch selling has become very, very different. It's not. It's less commoditized in some ways. In some ways, it's more, but. Um, in terms of independence and like real watchmaking, and that's something else that's happening right now, like like in real time, there's a shift away from hype watches that maybe don't have quite as much merit in terms of, you know, hand uh, hand watchmaking and and uh, um, uh, engineering and whatnot. And there's a shift towards more, um, you know, uh, high end watchmaking and vintage right now. We're seeing right, so we're seeing a depression in prices of some of those hype models that just like, you know, Steel Daytonas is like the one that everybody likes to point to because they were insane. It was like $50,000 watch for what, right? So those have come down almost 25% in value, whereas we just saw an auction last week, Jorn blew it out the water, getting stronger, a bunch of independents as well, other independents and vintage. So I think that's, it's moving in the right direction, uh, which bodes well for somebody like you. And I guess we can use that as a segue into you talking about your brand. So, so you had a, a really amazing experience working for, what turned out to be the most popular independent watch brand in our lifetime, right? Like Jorn, right. I can't imagine there's going to be another one that pops up. So we can go ahead and say Jorn is is the most. Uh, uh, we'll say there's a Rolex, Paddock, and, and APR all independents, but not boutique independents, right? It's like a different classification when you talk about Jorn. It only makes 900 watches or less a year, right? So um, what what did you use? And I'm sure that there's a ton here, right? That that uh, allowed you to start off on the right foot with your watches and become successful? Because I, I mean, we already know that you're already selling out your watches, but go ahead and give me some, 
some of the kind of like the real time one to one that you that uh, stuff that you've learned from working at Jordan now that you're bringing to your own brand. Sure. So the the first and foremost uh, dynamic or aspect I I guess carried over or I learned from that was um, the person to person relationship. Um, by by far, um, I did not know that's what retail was uh, because it was my first time doing a retail job, quote unquote. Um, it was a very very luxe retail job, but um, how how to maintain honest and genuine uh, relationships is the number one thing. Um, I never pushed. We never pushed on anyone to spend their money or buy anything. Um, if they wanted to think about it for a week or a month or two months or whatever, as long as we had the piece and they came back, that's what that's how long it took. Um, and I like I'm, I'm lucky that it's been a success so quickly and so far um, that I don't have quote unquote that worry. I mean, I always, there's nights where I stay up because I'm thinking and I'm stressing and I'm just, you know, you're, you're running a business and it's the first year and you're, you're, these are, these things are expected. So um, that was the first thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So that's the first and foremost. Um, Second was knowing what makes a good watch. Now, the first, uh, I'll be the first to say I will never create something like Jordan. Um, I'm incapable. Uh, there, there, there are people that come in your lifetime or in history uh, every so often, and, and I, we were lucky enough to have been born in the same time this guy was living. So I call him the modern brigade. Um, I think he's the best watchmaker alive currently. He would appreciate uh, that. Not that there's... Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Um, and that's where I learned, by the way, what was going to inspire my vision uh, was from Jorn. So not only do I owe it to them um, economically, um, I owe it to them for education and knowledge. Um, the first, the first month and a half was just learning, not doing or not selling or anything. Um, I read. There's, you know, Jorn uh, boutiques have libraries inside, um, and I read. All- all of those books, everything about time and, and old watches and Breguet. And uh, that's where I really fell in love with Breguet was like reading the uh, the art of Breguet, um, art of Breguet and George Daniels and learning about, okay, what is a good watch? So you learn very quickly, okay, if I'm going to go do my own thing, then I need to have some of these aspects that make a a really good watch in my watch. So for example, overcoil hairsprings, you know, that lead to more accuracy. Um, that's in the OO. So I wouldn't have known that if I worked at any of the conglomerate groups, because I would imagine that there's so much bureaucracy and so much um, of that corporate governance kind of thing that you're kind of suffocated. At least that's what I've expected from corporations in general. Um, so with Jordan, it was, uh, I was reading everything on the on the times that the boutique was empty or, um, you know, this was before all the hype, of course. Um, and uh, I would just sit there and just read. So it was that I learned uh, what makes a good watch um, measure uh, as far as uh, how it sits on your wrist. Um, I was always a sports watch guy. So I knew I wasn't going to be that known for a dress dress watch company. So um when I first started designing the case, for example, um, it wasn't too far off from what you see now. It was a little bigger. Um, it was thicker. And just because I, you know, I'm, I'm not a technical artist, you know, I, I just drew what came to mind. Um, 
And uh, but because of what I learned about Breguet and Frogham and all these other watchmakers that are amazing and that very few people know about, um, I was like, man, how do I how do I connect those two things? I'm a sports watch guy. I'm active. How do I take what those guys did and the aesthetics of what they did and combine it? So that's that's where it really stemmed from. Um, and it kind of just takes its own life, really. Um, you know, you're designing and drawing, and I would be drawing everywhere, um, to be honest. And um, I would draw the crown, for example, when I was out at lunch, and uh, it would come to me, and I would integrate it into what you see now. So um, it was that. Amazing. So, so you're, and when did you start the like the preliminary steps towards building your, like starting your own brand? Early, very early 2019. I think it was January 2019 that I formed the LLC. Um, and I was already playing around with designs and before that, but I would say really getting into it was early 2019. So it was before I joined Jordan. Mm -hmm. I knew okay. I was going to do this before I got into Jordan um, because I had a feeling when I first started paying more attention to this industry where I was like, man, I am not thinking about anything else. Like, this is my life. Um, I stopped watching TV. I stopped watching shows. I stopped uh, reading. I, I just started learning more about watches. Um, and I'm not saying I am the foremost expert or anything like that. Lord knows there's this industry has so many Tim, like yeah, Tim's that that's Tim with Tim and like Wade <laughs> Owen, the way he understands like the technical side, like it's amazing. Um, so I'm still learning, of course, but um, I realized, okay, this is my passion now. Like, this is what I am here to do and commit my life to. So that's what I decided. Um, I started drawing out different models. So at this point, we, I've drawn out probably about 13, 14 models. So um, those will take a long time to obviously realize. But um, one other thing I will—I forgot to mention um, uh, that I learned from Jorn was it's an—it's—it's it's the independent, right? Um, you learn a lot because of how much your hands are touching. Um, logistics, production, timelines, um, CRM, how you're maintaining your relationships with these people, um, how you do this. I mean, I came from sales anyway, so I kind of had that already there fundamentally, but dealing with a certain clientele. Uh, obviously, you're dealing with the creme de la creme in this world, and, um, and uh, you... It, uh, that was the other thing was the business slash operation side of building an a independent watch brand, I guess. Interesting. That's, it's amazing. And I, and I, I can appreciate you coming from a sales background because that's how I identify myself as a salesperson. Like first and foremost, right. right? So I'm a father and I have a few other things going on in my life, but I've always, for whatever reason I've gravitated, people have always told me, Hey, you should be a lawyer. You should be in sales. And that's, and I think that I can definitely just speaking with you, like you're a compelling speaker you're very, you have a lot of conviction in what you say. And when you're passionate about things, you can, I can tell, like you just, there's no labored thought here. You're just talking about things that you love. And I think that's really important. And seeing that, seeing somebody starting a brand from that perspective, as opposed to you being say like a watchmaker and then just like deciding, okay, I want to make the, the most amazing, amazing movements. And then, you know, not having any understanding of the business side or the sales side or having a connection with the customers, you know, it, it is an interesting 
um, dynamic that you have that like, I don't know, maybe Richard Mill would be the closest thing that I can think of that has, you know, Richard Mill's more on, uh, has more, the guy himself is more of a salesperson than a watchmaker, right? And he did kind of what you're doing. He found, okay, you know, I have a design in mind. I'm going to get the best movement from this guy, blah, 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 and put it together. So I guess that the closest, the closest watch brand that I would say in terms of its DNA would to yours would really be Richard Mill, which is interesting. And I, uh, hopefully you take that as a compliment. Um, I, I, I do. I do. And um, yeah. it, it's a, so there's two um, extremes that are pulling at the same time in my mind at all times. Um, and one of them is RM or Richard Mill. And one of them is, for example, the, I guess what the idea of a, of a real independent, like a Crivia or Jorn or Dufour and all that stuff is. So I'm trying to find this balance of how do I create something that means the middle of where those two things would be um, to the most amount of people or the most amount of passionate and genuine collectors, I should say. Um, both are so different, but both have committed and... Uh, change this industry so much for the better in a way that you there's no way of arguing against either side um, it really this whole this whole industry subjective so I have no way of telling people um, hey I have two hundred thousand dollars that I want to spend do I go get the I don't know before or do I go get a Richard Mill it, there is no objective uh, argument here it's what you want all of this is pointless because the Apple Watch killed it uh, and, and there is no way we're going to beat them, okay? So the objective metric is already we lost. So I'm glad um, people like Max Bucera start to, to talk about this is art. This is craftsmanship. Um, this isn't about, um, you know, the act. Look, I'm all for keeping things accurate. And, of course, you, you're wearing a watch. You want it to be accurate. Um, well, it's part of the art. But, right, of course. Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but, the engineering is, is I think, is one of the biggest part of the art. And I think that's what's so great about right. watches is that I can make – it's just it's like it's like a handmade car, like a Rolls-Royce, right? Like Rolls-Royce uh, – I mean you can buy a car that drives 99% as, as, as smooth as a Rolls-Royce or um, you know, is going to be as powerful – but there's something to be said about handmade everything, right? And then also handmade – everything that's handmade that also works well. So, like, that's where – you know, that's Jorn, right? So, like, the it's it, – the fit and finish is perfect. No one has ever looked – I've never met somebody who looked at a Jorn and said, that's ugly. I think that's right. part of the right. reason why it, – it's it's one of the least polarizing brands that comes from one of the most polarizing people, which I think is such an amazing, like, dichotomy, right? Like, very very good way to put it. Yeah, so, yeah, he's – if you meet the man, my experience in, 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 in at least, right? I can only speak from my experience with him specifically is that he's an extremely compelling individual. He, is, <laughs> he can be crass. He asked me if I was a homosexual in a joking way, which I thought was at dinner because oh I ordered tequila. I, I ordered tequila and he looks at – he was ordering for us. He asked everybody what they wanted to drink and I said, can I have a tequila, tequila and water? And he looks at the waitress, looks back and goes, you gay? <laughs> like, whatever you're offering you know we're, i am i am on vacation that's, but like that's that, friends all fall for it right <laughs> yeah so i mean he's but he's also like he's he's uncompromising he like he might he might not take himself that seriously when he's outside of this watch uh, out of the um the factory but in the factory he also seems like a terrorist like people are seem to be afraid of him because again 
he is uncompromising. And, and we, like, I had a conversation with the guy who was running the dial manufacturer, and he was explaining, like, the guy was almost being, like, too open with us. He was explaining how um, if they could, if, if he would, if Francois Paul would just allow them to make the dial, like, slightly thicker, it would be, like, 10 times easier for them. And, but because his, you know, he had specifications and he's not going to compromise on them. And this guy was saying, like, it will make no difference in the watch for this dial to be, like, whatever, like a micron thicker or whatever it might be. And he goes, it'll make things much easier. But he decided it cannot, it has to be to a certain thickness and he's not going to compromise. And I think that's, that's really, really important. And it shows kind of, that's, that's one of the reasons why it's so popular is that I think that comes across in the watches that he's uncompromising. And again, when you, when you look at these, like if you, like a Tag Heuer is a great watch. I have plenty of them. I have vintage watches. I have, but there's no, like, nobody looks at that and says, oh, that's uncompromised art, right? Like, it's not, it's not what that is. But when you get to, uh, when you get to independent watchmaking, when you get to Jorn, when you get to Romain Gautier and you, you know, you look at uh, like a trivia or even right. like, so like I, I, I've done interviews with the, with, uh, uh, the owner of Garrick watches and I've okay. one of his watches and I love it and I, you know, and I love his passion. So like, that's one of the things you get from these independent watchmakers. And again, like bringing that back to what you're doing, you know, your watch is very interesting to me. And I'll tell you why, right? So as a watch collector myself, and I, and I plan on buying one. We got financially, we have some things going on. We're I have another, I have a, another baby coming in in October. We're buying. Hey, congrats! All right, thank you, thank you very much. So you know, we're and I'm I am as as impulsive as I am a watch buyer. Uh, I'm very conservative with my money, so I'm always very concerned about that. So as even though your I feel like your watch is certainly not overpriced. Uh, hopefully one day I'll have an opportunity to purchase one because I. I I have kind of gone down the rabbit hole with what you had there. I haven't seen it in person yet. I'd like to. Um, yep. Hopefully, I can get my hands on one of these before I make the purchase. But if not, I'll probably still do it anyways. But what I like about it is that yours, from an independent watch breaking standpoint, it's hard for me to think about another watch brand such as yours that has a focus on like high horology in the sense of not from complication so far, but you know, you're, it, you didn't go and grab an ETA movement. Right. right. You went to Schwartz Etienne, which are, which are making these are high end handmade um, uh, manufacturer movements. And then also the dial. Again, it's a sports watch with a high end manufacturer movement and a guilloche dial. Right. So it's it's a sports watch in functionality. But if I'm wearing that watch, nobody's going to look at that and confuse it for a Submariner or even like an offshore or anything. It looks like a. Uh, like a delicate watch in a lot of ways. And I mean that in a good way, but, but it has all the elements to make it a sport watch. Like I can wear that in the ocean. And I think that's really interesting. And I can't think of another brand who is like entered the market that way. And I think that's very unique. And it shows that you were not just looking for like to just put together something that was going to be mass appeal and see how much money I can make. It was, Hey, let me do something that I like. And it might not be, what everybody likes. And I'm sure there's some polarization in terms of the, you know, the shape of the case and, and kind of the fact that it is a sports watch, but it has the guillotine dial. Like I'm sure there's some people who are not going to like it, but I, I like that idea. I like the idea of that. I'm going to own something that not everybody likes. So I, right. I think that's very interesting from a collector's perspective. Well, yes. So, so a couple things, um, like on the last point you just made, yeah, I, I want it to be polarizing. Um, I, I don't want it to be a Submariner derivative uh, or whatever derivative. Um, I wanted it. There's obviously inspiration. Uh, you know, I, I always I forgot how the actual uh, quote is, but nothing is unique. 
um, everything is coming from something. So even, for example, Jorn, there's obvious draws of inspiration from Breguet um, in, throughout Francois Paul's designs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he openly says that was my role model and George Daniels and all those guys. So um, I am I am more inspired by the, um, as far as the dial layouts and what you will see coming, not with this one, you know, uh, too much. Um, a lot of Breguet and how he used to set the moon phases, for example, and the power reserves and the retrograde stuff from vintage Roger Dubuis and Frank Mueller. Um, I, I, that's what I love. So um, I'm really making the watch for myself. And um, it's, it's a blessing that if someone likes it, you know, great, come on board. If not, there's plenty of other brands. Um, and uh, like you said, I want it to be polarizing. Um, I want it to be something that people think about deeply um, and really consider it, which is, that's what Jorn was back then. Now it's such a no brainer and, you know, whatever the reasons these new people are getting in, you know, whatever they may be fine. Um, But that's what it was. People thought about it deeply. Like, what is this thing that I'm going to buy from some guy in Geneva um, who started by himself and um, 21 years into it. Now people are starting to, you know, go crazy about it. So, um, I hope as a business owner, I guess you, if you want to say that the trajectory is a quarter of what is going on with Jordan at this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, no. And, and, uh, it's about building it the right way. Uh, for me, um, I don't want it to be this, here today, gone tomorrow, and I, I Facebook marketed, hacked this thing, and um, the valuation, some tech company saw it and wanted to integrate their CRM. Like, I don't want it. To, if I wanted to do this for money, I wouldn't have done it. Um, I would have stuck to real estate or gone into finance or something like that, where over five, 10 years, I would have been making four or $500,000 a year and have a family and all that, you know, go to sleep at night without thinking about anything. Um, I'm doing this because I want to commit my life to this. Um, I was thinking about this. I had this thought the other day. Um, more and more, I think about, man, there's so few watchmakers. And I'm going to connect this to how things are done at schwartz Etienne and how my watches are built. Um, there's so few out there. I, I mean, who do you know that is trying to become a watchmaker? Maybe you know one or two guys. Um, I yeah. am doing this to bridge to be the bridge between what the new generation, the millennials and the Gen Z and all those people that are coming into this for the, what I think are the wrong reasons or the misplaced um, guidance, I guess. Um, Because everyone's so hyped up on Royal Oaks and Nautilus and and, uh, Rolex and all this, where now the independence, yes, to us, the people in the industry are gaining all this attention, but we have to be sure to communicate the right message to the people that are gonna come in and say, hey, you're, you're buying this because this, because of the history, because of this guy. Um, so really I'm doing this in a way to be the bridge between the people that are just learning and the people that really know. Um, that's kind of, I guess, if you want to say the mission statement um, of, of the brand, um, I think it would be that. I, I think that's, that's once more sales come in and there's we're up and running and um i can afford to do these more elaborate productions as far as like video is concerned mm-hmm. um i plan on doing you know big things like that uh, but you know one step at a time and 
uh, how I'll connect what I'm saying to what is being done at Schwartz Etienne. So I visited Schwartz Etienne in my in this previous um, uh, Europe trip. Uh, I went so for a week back, to right? Switzerland. Yeah, I just got back. I two two three days ago. Um, the jet lag just kind of uh, weaned off, and um, I was not expecting what I experienced at Schwartz Etienne. To be completely honest, for for the the good uh, the good side of that, it's not a whole production line of people assembling my watches. It's three watchmakers. Okay, maybe four if they really need help. Four. Um, there's one lady in a t-shirt and pants, very casual, uh, that is regulating the hair springs and the balances. One woman. Each and every single balance and hairspring that comes into that place. The hairsprings they make. Um, if, they, if they get to a point where the, they, there's so much demand and so much... Uh, you know, production coming in that they'll hire other, they have watchmakers that they can reach out to. Um, but on a day to day, it's three. Um, I met one of them. He's a, he's, he's just a young kid. He's 22 years old. Okay. <laughs> um, you really get to see, okay, you know, you wear this watch, for example, and um, it's on your wrist. You feel good. It looks great. Uh, you are loving the thing, but you really do not understand what is going into making an $8,000 watch. It's a lot. Uh, the dial making, it's seven different processes for this dial. And a lot of people um, that are into the independence are saying, oh, can you make a hand cut guilloche one? Because this one's stamped. Um, the pattern is stamped. Um, I said, yes, I can. But then I have to charge you around 11, 12,000, if not more for that, for the same exact watch. And the, the characteristics are almost indistinguishable. Um, so much hand, uh, handmadeness, quote unquote, is going into a stamp dial. It's crazy. I saw the entire process. Each and every single process is quality controlled. Um, the paint that is applied to the the blue and the green and the purple, for example, um, it's it's a guy doing it with his hand. He's turning it and he's he's literally applying coats. Um, the milling is done by one guy. The galvanization where the baths are, you know, you, you expose the dials to one guy and he has to time it perfectly. So the, the hues are, are perfect. Um, one little micron of a variation and it's used and they have to throw it away. So the amount of work going into an $8,000 watch is insanity. Uh, I was after I, they did the walkthrough at both uh, Schwartz, Schwartz Etienne and Cadranor, the dial maker. I w the thought that came to me was like, man, I have to be charging more for my watches um, <laughs> because because you don't know, you really don't know. Like when 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 Mauro, the CEO of Schwartz Etienne, um, walked me through and showed me how the hairsprings are being uh, produced, I'm like, what in the? F it's it's crazy. I. Yes, we know a lot about the industry, but you don't know what the manufacturing site is until you actually do a walkthrough of a manufacturer. Um, so I'm glad to say that independent spirit, that high horology uh, dynamic is very much intact with the company um, and what the watches are. So, you know, I can, I'm happy to get into the technical specifications of it and whatnot, but um, all of that, all of that is available um, online and, I'd like to talk more about the philosophy of where it came from and um, 
I'm happy to do that if you want, Josh, or yeah, uh, following so your. Have, yeah, I have a few questions so, uh, in that in that regard. So, well, first is so the HN zero. It's your first model. Mm-hmm. It's right the one you led with. Is that the DNA of your brand? Uh, are the rest of the watches that you're going to release? Are they going to be derivative of this? Are they going to be completely different? Or is there something that you're going to keep within that DNA that strings the entire kind of company together or like what's what's that uh how does that work in terms of your thought process sure sure so um the first thing uh, well one of the first things that you re- you learn about i guess product design if you want to call it that is you need to have a cohesive design language um that is the number one thing so people identify it uh so the case the shape the general shape of it will always be the same um, we're working on making the second one thinner it's being worked on as we speak um, so that was the only complaint, I guess, quote unquote complaint, if you want to call it, is um, the people looked at the cases and the pictures that people took online. I will admit that it does look thicker than it actually is uh, and how it fits. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and Tim Maso was the first one. He was like, oh, man, like the, the picture is deceiving when he put it on his wrist. And he has a tiny wrist. Um, it looked like awesome on him. So I was like, OK, thank God. Um, so I've had people with wrists as small as five and a half, um, inch diameters wear no problem. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the case, the case design will always be the same. That will be a, a defining characteristic of the brand. Uh, so the dials so just to describe it to some of the listeners mm-hmm. who haven't sure. after this podcast, they listen to this, hopefully they'll go Google it. By the way, I don't know if we've actually, um, said the name of your brand, uh, during this entire <laughs> interview, it's called Havid Nagan. Is the yes. uh, is the name of the brand? So if you're googling, it's H A V I D N A G A N, Havid Nagan, right? And uh, um, Tim Masso has an amazing hands-on uh, review of a prototype you had, which I think you just showed to me on the uh, on camera yep. a minute ago. You had that in your hands, um, but yeah. So if you're looking, if you if you're interested in this or you want to see what it looks like, what we're talking about, it's Havid Nagan. But to describe it, it's basically like a squared tonneau shaped watch right almost yeah it's got like that like tv screen if you look at it head on it looks like it's a square but if you look at it from the side or put it on the wrist it's more tonneau shape which it's funny so as an offshoot of this or a little tangent when um when ap was releasing their 1159 they were hyping it up saying oh they have this revolutionary watch it's going to change everything whatever and i was telling people i'm like if they were to make a tonneau shaped sport watch Right in in that in a in a price range that's going to be below the uh, the Richard Mills, I think that would be like so, like that would do amazing because people like like Frank Mueller was a very very popular brand for a short time for business reasons they basically kind of screwed the pooch and they're coming back a little bit but right. in right. the end there's a huge market for those tono shaped watches they're very comfortable they look a little funky and I, so don't take this the wrong way I mm-hmm. like watches that look a little ugly. And I can't, and, and and I see that in your watches, right? Like there's a little bit of a <laughs> to it that I love. I just I don't know what it is. Like so, in the same vein, like I like hatchback cars. People are like, "What the hell's wrong with you?" I don't know for whatever reason. I'm, I'm I like hatchback you. cars. I like Eight things that are have a small amount of funk in them, and 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 that's what I I get from Havan uh, or from Havi uh, uh, Nagan is that um, your watches are like it has like that kind of funk feel to it. But it's it's going to be something that sits broad across uh, across the wrist, but it's not going to be too big. Right. right. So, right. So that's going to be the, the, that's what we're going to expect from every release is going to be that same kind of case. Yes. Yes. So, um, 
like you said, I, I, funny enough, a lot of people compare it to Panerai or a Nautilus or a Roy Loke. And sure. look, uh, you're talking about some of the most iconic designs in, in, in the industry. Compare it. Please feel free. Um, but really, I'll t I'm, I'm being 100% honest when I t tell people the real uh, inspiration from it um, in term two, two points of inspiration. Uh, one being my, my own personal professional background, which is, was covered a little um, in other publications, was uh, my, my time in, in Los Angeles real estate. And um, there was specifically a, um, an architect. His name is Paul McLean. And he is known for doing these very elaborate and beautiful, uh, complicated, modern uh, uh, structures. And um, the big distinction between a, a normal, quote unquote, normal, uh, modern white, uh, modern uh, box house that you see in the Hollywood Hills, for example, and a Paul McLean is the nuance. Mm -hmm. um, I would urge everyone to go check it out because each and every single one of his creations is just insane. Um, so there was inspiration from that. I saw these clean lines that he would do and like the, the connection between different parts of the home. Um, I was like, man, I need to be able to discern and like kind of create the case in a similar way of uh, like nuance and um, just putting together this like structure. That's what I wanted the, the watch to be is a structure on your wrist. That's what the, I guess the official copy um, on the website is. Um, I want it to be something where people are like, wait, what is that? You know, tell me about that. So um, that was the first point of inspiration. The second point of inspiration as far as a watch context uh, is concerned is um, vintage paddock uh, references. I forgot what the actual reference is, but it was a blue dial, um, very beautiful vintage reference. And I'm not a big paddock fan. I'm not a big paddock guy, but there were certain pieces that from them that I was like, man, that's cool. Um, Frank Mueller. Yeah, um, I think it was. I, I need to find it. I'll send it to you. And um, square, square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your watch right. definitely give me that feeling of like the, of that ellipse, uh, except that you don't right. have any lugs, which I think is very interesting as well. Right. I always, I always loved cushion cases. Um, so, uh, for example, the John Schaefer cases from AP, um, like mm -hmm. those minute repeater, tiny, tiny little things. Um, I, I remember seeing one for the first time, and I was like, like, what the hell is this, man? Like, this is. They used to do such cool things, these brands, you know, they, they took risks and they did like really creative uh, one off production in, let's say, if it was like a one year timeline or a six month timeline uh, where they produced these such like thought provoking cases and designs um, where I was like, man, like that's what I want my watch to be, because the first watch that really took me was a Frank Mueller. Um, and I was like, man, that's not a circle case. It's so different. Um you know, you can say uh, Frank Mueller was the first Richard Mill. And like you said, for reasons other than the watches themselves, um, predominantly, uh, you know, they had that whole issue. Um, so that's where it comes from. It's neo-vintage cushion cases and, and my own uh, experience in, in this modern real estate world uh, in Los Angeles. So um, I always liked the curvature. Uh, uh, of the of a case back, so I want it to be comfortable and kind of melt into my wrist. Um, so that's really where it came from. Awesome, I love it. I think it's it's fantastic, and I think that, like I said before, you know, you have it, it's it's like almost like a um, well, it's it's funny because on your website you call it a paradox, and that's kind of what you had there, right? So you have you have 
some some opposites there, right? You have the DNA of a sport watch, but the execution of like a fine dress watch. Question for you though, is there a rubber strap available for any of these? There will be. Um, it's being worked on as we speak. I wanted to, the reason I went with the Alcantara the first first round um, is I wanted something different. Um, I didn't want it to be another Croco. I didn't want it to be another rubber. I didn't want. I wanted someone to be forced into okay. Let's have some fun with this. You know, um, you don't really see watches on Alcantara suede straps, and if you do, it's very rare. Um, and I love it when I do see it because it's something different. Um, so it's also kind of like a alternate lux kind of feel, um, and that, that's that's what you know I ended up going with. But the rubber will come, the leather, the alligator will come eventually. It's just mm-hmm. one thing at a time, you know. Uh, sure. One of the most important lessons I've learned so far is everything takes time, um, and when your manufacturing partners uh, tell you three months, you should you should start thinking more six months. So, um, Especially in uh, oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's, um, the supply chain thing is, is really bleeding into this industry and, um, uh, uh, you know, not just for Jorns and, and, uh, the really independent, I mean, everyone. So, uh, people, you know, we have to be patient. And then the collectors also have, have, I think they've learned to be patient. Yeah, I think people are, uh, especially these days. Um, right. But I, and I would say, in terms of your strap, I think they look great. But I don't think that strap's going to hold up in the South Florida heat. So that's why I'm asking. No, no, no. The the, the, rubber, the rubber will come, and uh, when you make your visits to LA and New York and all that, I think it'll be a little more sweet. Awesome, man. So, um, are you only selling direct? Yes. Oh well, okay. I'm sorry. There, there is a partnership. Um, we are going to announce soon. It's my only retailer, mm-hmm. um, not in the Americas. It's it's uh, in the Middle East, okay. and um, we will be announcing it soon. So uh, I can't say anything yet, but uh, we will be doing it. And he's phenomenal at what he does. It is purely independent focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've been very lucky to have been connected with him. So uh, shortly we'll be announcing it. Tremendous. All right. I can I can assume it's probably Dubai, but you don't even have to even give us a hint. But uh, but it, and, and that so earlier I said, you know, let's move away from people. The, these brands need to move away from dealers, authorized dealers. So the caveat is there are many um, international locations where you still need the dealers. Right. Like people are still it's a little bit like in, in, the, in the U.S., at this point, everybody's very interested, very comfortable buying online. I feel like, I mean, I right. I do almost a million dollars in sales every month, and I may maybe meet you know two percent of my customers in, in person. Everything else is done online, and right. and um, and so I think in the U.S. and in certain countries, you can still kind of do it that way, but uh, and just use basically a FedEx account as your distribution source. But you know, Middle East, Russia, if it you know if things kind of get back to normal there, um, you know, places like that where, you know, there's still going to be uh, issues either governmental or just cultural where you need an authorized dealer. And I think that does make sense, especially in the Middle East. And I um, I think yeah. you're, you're probably making the right move there. And, and you, yes, absolutely. As far as um, the international retailer uh, dynamic is concerned, absolutely. Um, that Those markets, still, there's a reason why Jordan hasn't done it. I always, I always like to say, uh, you know, you have a lot of free information in front of you if you pay attention. 
Um, you know, you don't have to hire consultants or market researchers or anything like that. Just pay attention to what's going on. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, uh, I recently met on, again, on my travels, um, I met with an individual who acted as, who would act as a point of sale, um, in France and Switzerland. And, um, the big realization was it's too early for us at this point to have those, you know, too many of those partners. There's only one that I'm committing to for now. Um, I, and as far as America is concerned, I can handle it. You know, if I need to fly to Chicago or New York or Miami or wherever, I can do that. Um, can zoom with and, uh, or I can zoom and I have, uh, and I, and I have, so, uh, I'll be going for, I'll be going to New York, uh, the week of July 11th, uh, to do a couple of, uh, meetups with, uh, some of the bigger guys in New York and Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, an individual is helping me, uh, connect to these people. Like, look at what's happening. This is amazing. You know, uh, as far as re I'm not, I'm, I will never knock the retailers because they built this industry um, in in a huge amounts of, uh, of of effort on their part. Um, but it's changing uh, the whole world. I mean, look at what's happened in the last two years. You know, uh, my wife hasn't left the house for work in three almost three years now. You know, so um, that's crazy. So you have to acclimate. You have to understand how the dynamic and or is changing and how collectors are starting to think and what they are comfortable with. Because at the end of the day, you go where they need you to go. So um, we're lucky. And a lot of the people that I told about in the beginning and saying, Hey, I'm building this thing. This is what I launch. And you know, uh, they were in early, so to speak. Um, there is no better time to be doing this. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, I always yeah. tell people, I know of a couple of other people who are working on developing their own brands who are not watchmakers. Um, I told them, do it. If you're passionate, if you genuinely care about this industry, if you really have uh, this thing in you that is pushing you towards and you're going to um, contribute to the industry in any way, do it. Why not? Why not me? Why not you? Um, if, if we're contributing and we're benefiting people and people love it, um, as far as long as there's a market, uh, for what you're doing, so be it. Uh, not everyone has to be Francois Paul. Not everyone has to be, uh, Philip Dufour. You know, those people mm -hmm. are, uh, there's a reason they're so exclusive. There's only so much. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's our job, in my opinion, to be the, the gate, not the gatekeepers, the, uh, the gateway into that pinnacle level of Dufour and Jorn, uh, Voodalainen, you know, these are amazing craftsmen and artisans. I mean, uh, it's amazing to see how my watches are built. It's, it's even crazier to see, um, the Paganis of the watch of the watch world, you know, um, they're more expensive of course, but they have to be more expensive. Uh, or I guess the word isn't expensive. They cost more. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it, it's a beautiful time in industry because each and every single niche is being developed and expanded on. So um, I think it's the best time uh, to be completely honest uh, for yeah, this. No, I would agree with you. I think that, well, what the reason why we're seeing this is that, like you said, there's 15 year old kids walking into Jordan boutiques. Whereas right. when, when you and I were 15, well, I don't know about you, because you said you've always been on watches. When I was 15, I didn't know. I knew Rolex. No, I didn't. Okay, I so didn't. So I knew Rolex and I and I knew Tag Heuer, though I don't think I knew how to pronounce it correctly. 
And like, I just didn't understand or care. I, I thought a Rolex was something that rich people wear. Like that's, that's as far right. as it went. Right. right. Whereas, you know, 15 year olds now know Patek Philippe, they know Audemars Piguet, which again, I didn't know any of these. I didn't know any of this stuff. Yep. Um, yep. So I think that there's, and, and the reason why you saw, and I've said this on a bunch of my episodes talking about the market, is that the reason why you saw, you saw, and you're still seeing, you know, quote unquote hype watches because Rolex, AP, and Paddock to an extent are some of the easiest brands to understand in terms of design language when you look at them. And that's one of the reasons why Jorn is so popular too from that, uh, you know, from the high end is that when you look at the watches, it's easy to understand what you're looking at. It, right. It's not a Debethune. Right. It's not a Vuitton and crazy dial or a um, or something, you know, or, or an Erver, right? Like where you right, need right. to be a connoisseur in, ter- in, in order to understand what you're looking at, right? So when people come into the industry or they come into this to the world of watches, they're going to gravitate towards whatever makes sense to them first, and then that's what they're going to build their knowledge base on, and that's gonna that's where a lot of the demand is going to go, and as it moves from there to other brands so going towards other whatever swatch group brands or richemont brands so you get the panerai's the iwc's uh or you go you know the omegas even or and then furthermore to like the gerard Perigos and the elise nardin so people as as they move through and then they then they discover you know independent watchmaking or maybe they on their youtube feed a george daniel video comes up and then like you know people because by the way I don't know about you. That's my favorite watchmaker of all time. George Daniel is a most amazing individual. Um, I, I see a lot of Jorn in George Daniel. Like, oh, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. I, uh, I think in a lot of ways, they're they're very very similar. Um, I I mean, even Roger Smith. I the the level of patience and will um, and uh, talent, inherent talent that you need to have. Um, to sit there and literally mold the cases out of bricks of gold is like unfathomable to me. It's mind um, It's so that's the pinnacle of this industry. Um, it's like I said, the Paganis and not everyone can get, get a Pagani. Not everyone can um, uh, have access to it. Uh, there isn't, there, that's not a reason for it not to exist. Um, and for us to not celebrate these people and, uh, you know, a lot of, for example, at my time as Jorn, a lot of people would, oh, man, uh, it's been it's been a year and a half. I still haven't gotten it. Oh, it's been two years. Uh, well, we're not bullshitting people, you know, um, it's if you really care about this industry, if you really care about the company and the watches that they're building and um, the craftsmanship and the philosophy of what the brand is, you'll wait. Um, th- th- that's that's how it is now, uh, you know, the world has changed. It's, there's, there's a lot of people on the, the ship, so to speak. So, um, it just takes time, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, I saw it firsthand with how my watches are made. So if my watches are being made in that way and how long it takes for them to be made, I can only imagine what Jorns and Smith's and Daniels and all those are, uh, how long they take. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just how it is. So- so questions, a few more questions. So are, are you comfortable talking about how many watches your company uh, manufactures? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, we uh, essentially are acting as an on-order brand um, at this point. Um, it's still to be determined, I guess, how we'll finalize how production is done. Um, this 
run, the initial run, uh, I ordered 115. Uh, they're all essentially spoken for. Um, Not all delivered yet. What so I plan? Have any of them been delivered? No, no, no. They they haven't been delivered yet. No, no. None, um, none of them have. No. Okay. Okay. No. All right. Um, they'll be delivered around December, January, assuming everything goes according to plan with all this, uh, the the shipping stuff and the uh, you know the supply chain stuff. So, um, how we'll do it, and I'm still working things out with Schwartz Etienne and and all the different manufacturers. Um, We'll aggregate orders as they come in over time, and um, we will submit these orders um, eventually. And I don't know as far as timelines yet. Um, I'm working on the second one for the time being. And I think we'll always be sort of a subscription kind of uh, method. Um, I ordered extras. They were sold anyway, but I always order extras just so, you know, when people come around and they learn about it later on, they'll they'll have access to it. Um, that, that will be uh expounded upon over time as as cash flow comes in and the business is up and running um but that's how we'll do things uh that's my best way of doing this as someone who does not have venture capital behind me i don't have hundreds of millions of dollars i don't have a pharmaceutical company behind me like i am doing this my wife and i okay um as the money comes in we're building it and we're infusing the cash into it enough to feed feed ourselves and have the you know not worry about the house or anything like that so uh that's how i found is the best way sure okay so that was my next question do you have any investors and the answer is just sweat equity here none at all um i've had people ask me uh but i've had people come to me and say hey you know we'd be interested in uh, individuals collectors too um who want to be a part of it and i just don't need it for the time being thank god you know uh, it's, it's a blessing to say that but um I, I have access to it i just i don't want it um and i want it to be built the right way if we're if i'm going to commit my entire life to this then let's really build it the right way so uh i'm not saying i'm i'm a masochist or anything like that but um it's going well so far so Nice. All right. And um, do you have like a goal as to like, okay, I want to make a thousand watches a year with across five different lines. Like, do you have anything like that? Any views for the future? Or you're just kind of taking it day by day. The only metric I have um, is to meet as many genuine and passionate collectors as I can. And if they want to be a part of it, then they buy the watch. Um, I don't want it to be a huge thing. I don't want it to be this multinational global um, thing where it's so hard to manage and so many employees and all of the, I don't want things to get complicated. I like my life simple. Um, my wife and I are, you know, she has her own job, but she helps me with like the, um, operational, like financial models and all that. Cause I, I'm not that guy. I, I'm not good with computers and all that. Um, so, um, so she's the operation. I want, side. she's the operation side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I want it to be, a family. I want to have as many genuine and, and personal relationships as much as I can, you know, within reason, of course, I can't be everywhere at once. Um, but at the peak of it, if we get to, let's say, 500, 600 collectors, if not, let's say a little more collectors throughout the world uh, that understand and love what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, uh, that's a win for me. As, as long as um, I can work on this dream, and this, which I am, this is my dream. I can't believe I'm doing it. Um, as long as the house is taken care of, we have enough food, 
um, watches here and there, you know, if my wife is, is kind enough to <laughs> let me get away with that stuff, um, I, I'm winning, you know, that's, that's, um, I don't care to be a billionaire. I don't care to be a multimillionaire or any of that stuff. I just want to do what I want to do, man. This is my passion. Um, and, and the people that have purchased the watch so far, um, I owe them, uh, because this is, it, it's because of them. I'm able to do this. Thanks. Well, I'm, I'm trying to help. I have, uh, a few of my friends who are collectors who have reached out to me randomly and asked, uh, you know, I'm a supporter. I, Again, the first thing I thought was slightly ugly, and I stared at it for a little bit. And I'm like, in a good way. And then, you know, the, the few people who've reached out to me about it, I've said, yeah, I think it's, I think it's worth it. Um, you know, the movement, movement makes sense. Again, it's not, a, it's not like you're buying some sort of modified ETA, which is not a bad thing, but you're getting an upgraded movement. You have the grade, right. the grade five titanium, which I think is really, really important. Um, right. And you know, I think you're getting such a very unique design from that watch and i think it's worth taking a shot so anybody who asks me will be getting a uh uh a green light. and an approval yeah exactly <laughs> so and if anybody's listening this deep into it and hasn't hasn't turned off the podcast yet um you know how how would they how would somebody buy a watch from you right now if they were interested uh, uh, either reach out through the website. We have a, we have a, a contact form or inquire form on the top right hand side of the website, uh, where it'll it's just one email info at habibnagan.com or Instagram uh, DMs or comments. Uh, please feel free. Um, either one of those. It's that's been the the way I've been communicating with everyone. Nice. All righty. And are you the you're the one who's answering all those? I. It's literally only me. Nice. Good to hear. <laughs> That's fantastic. Sweet, man. Well, yeah. hey, listen, we've gone for about an hour 20. It's one of the longest podcasts I've had. I think we could probably even go longer if we wanted to. Maybe we'll oh, we'll for do sure. part two. Once I get one of these on my wrist, we'll have to do a part two. Um, or you next time you're maybe in Miami, maybe we can put together a little collector's dinner. I have lots of friends who are big big time watch collectors who would probably like to meet you here down as well. And and uh, you know, you being from Los Angeles, you're familiar with palm trees, and we have plenty of those down here. So uh, no, I, I, I love I love Miami, so I, it would I would take any excuse uh, to come visit because it's been quite some time I've been in Miami. So sweet. Well, we're uh, Watchbox as a company is opening two locations down here: one in Boca, which is where I'm at right now. I'm not at the location, but I'm in Boca Raton, and then one downtown, uh, the Design District, not too far from the from the Jorn Boutique, which is a, a favorite hangout of many of my friends yeah. uh, down in Miami. Yeah. So uh, we'd love to love to meet you. I'd love to meet you in person as well. So. Um, Fantastic. Likewise. So you guys check out his website uh, for any details on the watches. Uh, it's H-A-V-I-D-N-A-G-A-N.com. Havidnagan.com. Um, also on Instagram, I think, is it at Havidnagan? Yep. Yep. Okay. All righty. And if you haven't already seen Tim's hands-on review of the HNO or HN0, uh, check that out. Just type in Havidnagan on YouTube, and it's probably usually be the first uh the first um, right. uh, video result there. You can check that out. Tim went in depth. So it's probably more information that you'd ever need about the watch. And it's, 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 it's <laughs> on brand with Tim. <laughs> That's right. All right, guys. And so again, if you're listening, if anyone's listening to this uh, an hour and 20 minutes deep, we love you. You're a champion. Uh, if you're, if you're interested and you want to get my, uh, my thoughts or want to talk to me about independent watchmaking or about this brand or any others, um, reach out to me direct. You can email me at jthanos at thewatchbox.com. Uh, 
You can uh, find me at Mr. Thanos on Instagram. Um, and uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and uh, you'll get the updates whenever we post a new a new podcast, which at this point has been probably about once or twice a month now. So again, thank you so much, Aaron. I appreciate you taking your time to speak with me. I'm very excited about this. Um, and thank uh, you, man. Thank you. One of these in person and I can't wait to be an owner of the watch. So awesome, man. Thank you. So well, much. we'll make it happen soon. Sweet. Thank you. Thank you.